0: G'day uh, everyone. I wonder what you thought when we said we were going to look at the book of Daniel. Uh, Have you had a sermon series, or a Bible study, or a a book that you've looked at before? There's a few nods, a few of you have. Um, I imagine there were some of you who probably had been exposed to Daniel through a children's Bible. Uh, Because when it comes to uh, stories of brave men and opposition, Daniel comes to mind. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. You've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you've got this uh, exercise uh, that's going on here. This kind of conflict between one king and and Daniel and other things. And it it really is a kind of good story, isn't it? And in fact, the New Testament picks up on these men as examples of faith. So if you um, let me read to you a little bit from Hebrews chapter 11, you know all the the witnesses of faith through Hebrews chapter 11 it says and what more shall i say i do not have time to tell you about Gideon Barak uh, Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouth of lions quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword uh, it's clearly Uh, Whoever wrote Hebrews has clearly got Daniel in mind, hasn't he? When you're shutting the mouth of lions and quenching the fiery flames and so on. But what are we to do with this? I mean, what do we make of this passage? Well, as I've been reading up on this, and I guess to give you a little bit of uh, what I've done in preparation for this series, I've read over the book of Daniel and I I keep doing that and I do that regularly and things uh, that I look at and then I come back to take on a new meaning, looking at other parts of the Bible and coming back, kind of adds a bit more understanding. In terms of the week before, well, our, our SALT group, we look at Daniel and the particular passage that we're going to be talking about, and I get a great deal of help from that discussion in our own home. Uh, I, I did actually consult a friend on this one, and uh, Gary Miller, who preached over the video to us a few times. I thought, I wonder if Gary's ever preached on the book of Daniel. And uh, I I tapped into his sermon from about a decade ago on Daniel chapter two, but I kind of tuned out a bit after the opening illustration, which is about men facing midlife crisis and buying Harley Davidson's. Um, But no, seriously, uh, Gary had some great things to say, and I'm indebted to him for something of the way I've approached this particular passage. Um, I think what we should do really is try and get the story clear and and then work at understanding within the story what is God looking to teach us Uh, because what we'll do each time as we look at the book of Daniel is discover it's far more than a good episode in a children's Bible. Last week we saw that God is the God who made promises. He was establishing his king in the kingdom. And that kingdom was to be one that was ruled ruled by David's son forever. And of course, the Babylonian exile is just a massive crisis. There's no Davidic king. There's no throne. There's no temple, ultimately. There's no city. There's no people of God in God's place under God's rule. They're captives in a foreign land. And so it's, it's more than just a, a political statement of, of, of the rise of the Assyrians and the Egyptians and then ultimately the Babylonians. There's something deep going on in the purposes of God. Well, we'll see that again today, but I'd like first of all to just kind of recap the storyline uh, and to do that fairly quickly. And I'm summarizing this story under five statements. You can see it there in your outlines. Nebuchadnezzar has a meltdown. Daniel has a plan. The dream gets explained. Nebuchadnezzar has a change of heart and then Daniel has a change of career. And I think pretty much that's the chapter. But we'll see when we look at it, that there's some fundamentally important things about the God who is behind this chapter and in fact is really the central character in Daniel chapter 2. So let's have a quick kind of run through this chapter. First of all, you've got Nebuchadnezzar on a bad day, in fact, multiple bad days. Uh, In the second year of his reign, verse one, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Um, It's not just a dream, it's that he keeps having dreams. And he's deeply agitated about this, he, he can't sleep properly, he he's keeps having these dreams and he's wondering what they mean. So he calls the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, in the Babylonian world, these were the wise men. In fact, these are probably the precursors to the Magi that come to bear gifts to Jesus as they come across from the east, probably Iraq, through to offer tributes to Christ. But here are the people whose job, really, is to provide wise advice to the king. And we know from all sorts of uh, backgrounds that that these uh, people with their sources, their of learning, the great literature that there was in Babylon, uh, their emphasis on, on magic and understanding what the stars were doing and so on, was a significant way that the king was to work out what the gods wanted him to be doing. And in Babylon it wasn't just one god, they had a whole collection of gods and these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, their job effectively was to work out from the signs what's going on and make sure the king understands. Now, we might tend to think that these guys are a little bit wacko. In fact, I think that uh, probably I'd imagine that most of us, when we hear about people taking astrology seriously or other kinds of sorcery these days, we tend to not take it seriously ourselves. Uh, I I forget about that sort of stuff, you know, the star charts and whenever there's a quiz, I've got no idea where Sagittarius and Leo and Pisces and all of these different things belong. But some people do and some people take it very seriously. I was trying to sell my car actually over the last couple of months and uh, we got a serious buyer around mid-June and he offered me exactly what I wanted for it and uh, I thought, this is good, because it had been since February that I had it roughly on the market. But he said, I can't buy it until after the 22nd of June. I said, why is that? And I imagined that, you know, he was getting some kind of bonus with his work. He says, my dad's an astrologer. And he told me that you should never make a financial decision prior to the winter solstice. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, that's only a week away. I'm okay with that. I can wait. <laughs> And very happily he arrived late on the 22nd of June and he handed over the cash. People here are doing the king's work, but you see, they can't do it. They just cannot do what he's asking them to do. In verse five, we read, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided, If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me." Now, I've read this again and again and again and again, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar is just an arch scumbag, basically because he's asking them to do something that nobody can do. But I'm not sure that he thought about it that way. So he's got these wise men in his elite service, and surely they ought to be able to get in touch with the gods or know the processes to work out, not only the meaning of the dream, but the dream itself. And I wondered too, just to kind of just cut a small amount of slack for Nebuchadnezzar, whether he was like me in so many ways, having vivid dreams every night, get up in the morning, you've got no idea what the dream was about. But it was deeply disturbing when you were having it. You had that experience? Well, either way, it seems that the is a little bit harsh. Cut them into pieces and burn down their houses. Well, they can't do it and so they explain that it's an unreasonable thing to do. In fact, nobody can do this. But the king won't have a bar of it, and so he is made angry and furious, and he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. there has got to be a little bit like cutting off your nose to spite your face, doesn't it? If you get rid of all of your, your wise men. So the decree was issued to put them all to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, up to this point, we haven't heard anything about Daniel. But now, his life is under threat. And why is it under threat? Because of the inability, the incompetence of the wise men of Babylon. Well, the next part, Nebuchadnezzar has a meltdown. Daniel, by contrast, has a plan. He gets involved and we see very quickly that he's a wise man. He he speaks with wisdom. He speaks with tact and he has a plan. In fact, it's a very humble plan. First of all, it's addressed towards the king. He asks for time. But more importantly, it's addressed towards God. He asks his three friends to join him in a prayer meeting. We need to ask God to reveal this to us. He's dependent upon the one true God to find an answer to Nebuchadnezzar's prayer, to his to his dreams, what they were and what they mean. And we get this wonderful exclamation where Daniel then praises God, having had the mystery revealed to him in a vision, and so Daniel is able to explain the dream. Now, the bulk of the chapter um, from this point onwards is about the revelation of this dream. The unveiling of what it was that Nebuchadnezzar had been kept awake at night for, and what it means. And God having revealed it to Daniel in a vision, Daniel is now able to go to the king and he acts in a a significant way that I think it almost appears incidental, but it's quite important. Daniel acts not in his own interests alone. Now, there would have been an enormous temptation, I would think, to think, you guys are getting what you deserve. Your frauds, your charlatans, your... your you kind of cosy up close to the king, but you don't have anything to offer. He's now got the goods. He's got the dream. He's got the interpretation, but he doesn't gain for himself. He asks that the king not only spare him, but spare the other wise men as well. He's acting so as to see the salvation of these people who don't know the true God. He acts to save the Babylonian wise men. He gets an audience with the king. He explains every detail of the dream. Now, the, the dream is a very um, impressive dream. There is this massive statue. And we're going to see massive statues again in the book of uh, Daniel. This one is an Olympic statue. It's got gold, silver and bronze, followed by iron and clay. Um, and then, of course, you, you get this... Uh, destruction of the final aspect of the statue with a rock that is uh, not cut out of a mountain by human hands but the rock somehow or other destroys this statue and then grows to the size of a mountain and then fills up the whole earth. uh, We've got to, uh, I, I think, not try and pin down exactly how the logic of this might work. We've got a big image here to take hold of. And we're not told everything in the explanation, but there are some things here that I think I want to pick up on that are quite helpful. First of all, in verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. And this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So, whatever we make of the details, and we're not going to get heavily into the details, there are some things that are made very clear. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the king who is at the head, the one who is gold. And then after him come various kingdoms, but the rock will come and destroy all of the kingdoms. And this rock is very impressive. And the kingdom, it will never end. Well, that's basically the meaning of the dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is stunned and he has a change of heart. And so we read in verse 44, uh, sorry, we read in verse 46, the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar has a change of heart. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's, he's become a Christian. Uh, now, I know Christ hasn't come at this point, but nor would I go so far as to say he's now a devout, God-fearing Jew. I, I think Nebuchadnezzar has just realised he needs to add another God to his collection. And that this one probably deserves to have the top shelf and some of the others to get relegated. Now he's a good Babylonian, after all. But he has a change of heart and he honours Daniel and Daniel's God. But Daniel finally gets a change of career. Uh, We see in verse 48, the king then placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now, just pause for a second, right? Daniel chapter 1, we meet a young man, whose city is destroyed, and he's taken captive into a foreign land to a foreign kingdom that speaks a foreign language that eats foreign food and he seems to have very little going for him. Now he's effectively made the prime minister of Babylon. He gets to rule under Nebuchadnezzar but over the province of Babylon. And he's put in charge of all the wise men. This is is like the chief of staff, the prime minister the one in control. And Daniel doesn't uh, forget his friends. And so in verse 49, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So they get uh, important jobs as well. Well, there it is. Nebuchadnezzar has a meltdown. Daniel has a plan. The dreams explain. Nebuchadnezzar has a change of heart. And finally, Daniel has a change of career. What do we make of it? What's God saying? How do we put this into practice? Well, I want to point to two big themes in this chapter. The first is true wisdom comes from God. True wisdom comes from God. You see the contrast, don't you, in this passage between the Babylonians and Daniel. But it's not about Daniel. This is not a great story of a great hero. No, it's not about Daniel. Daniel prays and God reveals the mystery. And we skipped over, but we must read it. It's wonderful. Daniel's praise to the God of heaven. Verse 20, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So there's no doubt, is there, that Daniel is indebted to God for his wisdom. God is the one and God alone, in whom true wisdom is to be found. And he reveals this wisdom to Daniel. He gives wisdom to Daniel that Daniel might do his will. He's given wisdom and power to Daniel. Now, this idea of wisdom, it's an important Old Testament reality. Uh, We we see the idea of wisdom coming up at a number of points. In fact, I think we mentioned last week, there's so many kind of points of connection between Joseph, who is taken captive into a foreign land, who's able to interpret dreams, who receives wisdom from God to be able to do that, and Daniel, who's taken captive into Babylon, who is enabled by God to show wisdom and tact, to be able to reveal and to explain the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Wisdom is a big thing. When Solomon is able to ask from God one question, what does he ask for? Wisdom. And we see that wisdom in the way he rules. You see it in the Proverbs attributed to Solomon. He is known for his wisdom in the ancient Near East. People came and brought tributes to him. People came and sought his wisdom. Wisdom is a big thing. We've got wisdom literature in the Bible. The book of Proverbs, the book, many of the Psalms, uh, the, the, uh, the book of Song of Songs, Job and Ecclesiastes, exploring this issue of wisdom in life circumstances. Wisdom is a big theme, but we see wisdom at work here with Daniel, but we're only really getting a taste of the wisdom that we will see if we keep reading in the Bible. And if we read on, and of course, we don't have time to read the whole Bible, so I'm going to jump across to the New Testament, um, we will discover where wisdom reaches its climax. And the language of wisdom and power on the lips of the Apostle Paul points to one person, and that is to Jesus. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22, verse 21 I'll read from. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Now, we've looked at 1 Corinthians here at at Saul, But the basic message of this is without God revealing himself, you can never know him. God makes himself known. He's the revealing God. It is his wisdom to make himself known. And how does he supremely make himself known? Well, in Christ, says verse 22, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So there's a lot of smart people in this world, a lot of incredibly intelligent, powerful people. There are people with influence, people who can change the decisions of nations. But if you want to see where true wisdom and true power is found, then you look to the supreme weakness of a man hanging on a cross. You see, in the death of Jesus, God's wisdom and power are seen. Sin is overthrown. Death is defeated. Through the resurrection, God declares Jesus to be that supreme ruler. There's wisdom. So, if you and I want wisdom, then we would do well to listen to the words of Solomon that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Summarise, you've got to start with God if you want to be wise. Wisdom is not about great textbooks and and world travel and a wealth of experience, as helpful as those things are. No, wisdom is about knowing God. And we come to know him through Christ, Christ crucified. There is the wisdom of God. There is the power of God. We need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom to live. We need wisdom to understand our world. We need wisdom to know how to respond, how to take initiative, what to make a priority, how to spend our money, what to do in this life. We need wisdom. Maybe, like me, at times you just feel clumsy, inadequate, foolish. Friends, it, Foolishness isn't a lack of understanding. Foolishness is knowing that wisdom is to be found in God and not turning to him. The book of James says, if any of you lack wisdom, then you should pray and God will grant it to you. Let's pray for wisdom. Wisdom to live as God would have us live that's a big lesson here God is the revealing God and God will make himself known to us through his word through Christ supremely and so we come to him in prayer asking that we'll know Christ more and more so that we'll know how to live as Christ's people and secondly another massive theme in this chapter of course and central to this vision given to Nebuchadnezzar is that there is a kingdom that is different to every human kingdom. There is a kingdom of God that will reign forever. Human kingdoms rise and fall. You see, it as you read through the chronology of the Old Testament, there are all sorts of kingdoms. Around this time, there's been the Assyrians and then the Egyptians and then the Babylonians. And we'll discover as we read on through Daniel and as we look at history that after the Babylonians come the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks and the Romans. And there are the Brits and there are the French and there's the Spanish and there's the Dutch and there's the Chinese. And of course these days it's not just the nation states, is it? The powerful, the Amazons, the Googles, The Facebooks, the Intels, the Microsofts, the the massive corporations that dominate the world economy, that influence state politics, that are shaping the mind and thought and cultural agenda of our world. But they come and they go. Anyone remember Nokia? You see it's a comfort to Israel to know this it's a comfort to know that that God has got the circumstances as we saw last week it, it's a comfort to Israel to remember that Nebuchadnezzar and the might of the Babylonian empire aren't dominant God is and that God will establish a kingdom that will see not only Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom come to an end, but every human kingdom come to an end. But it's interesting, first of all, this is a message for Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it, this dream? And if you come with me to verse 37, we we read this. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Now, I imagine at that point, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, ho, oh, oh, this is a good dream. <laughs> but what do you notice in that language? There's a hint of Genesis, isn't there? There's the man ruling over the world under the authority of God. Notice that the God of heaven has given you these things. And the God of heaven who has given Nebuchadnezzar authority to rule is the God who will take it away. For Nebuchadnezzar will not ultimately bow down to the one true God. You see, what we've got going on here is God bringing his judgment, not just on Israel in captivity, but ultimately the Babylonians. And after them, every human establishment that sets itself up in power. And God will replace that kingdom with another kingdom. In chapter 42, sorry, I don't have a chapter 40, but in in verse 44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people." That would have had uh, a pretty serious sombre tone about it, when you think back to Jerusalem and what they've left behind. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And then he says, This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. You see, this rock will destroy every kingdom. And this rock, well, we need to hear the words of Jesus. And so I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 21. What do we make of this rock? Well, the rock gets mentioned or a stone gets mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, in relationship to uh, God's plans and purposes for his chosen one in some of the Psalms, in other places, and Jesus himself picks up on these words. And uh, I'll read from Matthew 21 and verse 42, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now Peter himself will go on to speak about coming to a living stone, Jesus. The the language of the rock or the stone finds its fullness, its ultimate expression in Jesus himself. He is the one who has come as the king. He is the one who will set up an eternal kingdom. You see, you, you hear of a dream and multiple dreams. Um, and images and and metaphors of the rock and so on. And the temptation is to kind of leave it at arm's length because it's all imagery, right? But we need to be very, very careful about this because the imagery is all pointing to uh, an absolute reality. And that is that one day the kingdom of God will destroy every other kingdom. And you need to be a part of the kingdom of God if you're going to survive. Now, of course, Jesus' death and resurrection um, are the fulfilment of this and God continues to build his kingdom. God is building a church. He's gathering his people. Uh, He's building a kingdom that will never pass away. And so the lesson to us, I take it, is to therefore live wisely and live eternally. Let me just pick up on a couple of things. What will it mean to live wisely? Well, I think first and foremost, it will mean to know our limitations. To know, in a sense, what we don't know. To to know that we need God, that we're not in control. That that however wealthy we are, however experienced we are, how educated we are, however much we are can-do people, we need God. The message of Daniel chapter two is not Be a hero like Daniel. The message of Daniel chapter two is you need God like Daniel needed God. That's the difference. This is not rah, 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 we can take on the world. This is we need God's help. We really do. And that's great news. Looking at Daniel, he just keeps pointing away from himself to the God who's revealed everything. There's a humility about Daniel that I think is a model for you and for me. And when you look at Daniel and you see that what he does is merely pass on what God has given him, I think we get a picture of how God is calling us as his followers today to take hold of his revelation and to live it out and to pass it on. Indeed, to do that, is to step into reality. But when we wake up in the morning and we go about our business and we live as though God isn't really there and we don't give him any time and we make our decisions based on our own experience and our own knowledge, our own resources, that's a step into fantasy land. Because God is real and he wants us to humbly come before him and ask for help. Secondly, living eternally. I think this vision of kingdoms being destroyed, we need to take hold of and realise that we live in a world that has been and is and will be made up of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. All seeking to make a go of things on their own without God. And we can get swept along with that just as Daniel and his friends would have been tempted to do back in Babylon. But it's dangerous isn't it? The Bible says not to live for things that will be destroyed, not to live for things that crumble and fade, that that people can steal, that moths can destroy, that, that rust can eat out. Jesus says that our treasure should not be on earth, but our treasure should be in heaven. And I want to be encouraging us as a church to live eternally. I, re- I read a book a number of years back, um, it was called Ten Ten Ten, And I've forgotten the, the, um, the name of the author except her surname was Welsh. And she was the wife of the, um, the CEO of, I think it was um, General Electric, Jack Welsh. And she wrote a book on decision making, it was called 10, 10, 10. A brilliant book, really was. Um, it said, when you're faced with decisions and you're trying to act wisely, think 10, 10, 10. If I do this or if I do that, what difference will it make in 10 minutes? It's not gonna make any difference, just do it. What difference will it make in 10 months? Medium term significance. But she said, what you really need to ask is, what difference will it make in 10 years time? It helped to focus not simply on the immediate or the medium term, but on the big picture, the decisions, the choices, the the values, our commitments that we make, what difference do they make in the moment, but more importantly, what will they make in 10 years time? When I thought about that, I thought, it's not enough. It's not enough to think about the impact of our decisions in 10 months or 10 years, or even 20 years or 50. Now it should have been 10, 10, 10, 10. It needs another chapter. I could co-write it for her if she wants. (laughs) What will be the impact of your decisions in 10,000 years? And we might think, look, it's not possible to make decisions that will make an impact on 10,000 years. And I'll say you are so wrong. We are called to store up treasure in heaven. We are called to encourage each other to be there to the end. Not to have lived simply a good life, but to be right with God for all eternity. I have a friend who lives in Tarthra, Uh, his church in Bega, uh, having kind of got through the fires and and now being troubled through COVID and so on. It's like us thinking about being part of the fellowship of independent Evangelical churches, and, and my friend Dick worked in agriculture. He had a degree in agriculture and he worked for the Department of Ag and he's done some teaching and other things. And he told us about his retirement. Uh, they put a party on for him at work. And as was the case with others who'd retired before him, they asked him what he was planning to do with his retirement. Now a typical answer was we're going to see the world or we're going to get the golf handicap down or we're going to be there just for the grandkids or whatever it might be. But Dick had something profound to say. He said, I'm going to spend my retirement helping people prepare for eternity. And he has done and Dick is inspiring. And so is his wife and her name is Jane. Dick and Jane, I think, understand that the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed. And so they're involved in building a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Introducing people to Jesus and encouraging them to look to Him, to grow in Him, and to persevere till the end. Let's pray for wisdom. Loving Father, we ask for your help to be wise. Wise that we might know you and know your will wise that we might put that into practice in the way that we live and make choices, the way we speak. And also, Father, we pray that we will be shaped by eternity and not the temporary. Whether it's 10 minutes or 10 years, please, may we be shaped by 10 million years. What will be to be in the Kingdom of Christ forever and ever?